Welcome back, everybody. Episode number 39 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Hackett. Joining me, my charming guest co-host this week. Jack Ernest in the house. <laughs> Jack, good to see you again. Uh, of course, fans of the show will remember Jack. He's been on our show before. Um, Joe is uh, traveling this week, so we'll be sure to check in with him when he's back. Should be back in the studio uh, for next week's show. But uh, for this week, we're happy to have Jack. Of course, Jack also has his own podcast, World's Best Podcast with Jack and Reno. Be sure to find them wherever podcasts are found. And then also follow Jack on Twitter, handle at Jack Ernest. Ernest is spelled U-R-N-E-S-S. Jack, good to have you on the show. Good to be here, Jimmy. Happy to be here. So you're in Dallas now. I think last time we, we spoke, you were maybe in Portland, if I'm not mistaken, or... Yeah, so I just moved to Dallas about uh, three months ago. So if you have listened to our podcast, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus since I've been here, just trying to get settled. Um, sort of had a career shift, was uh, in the construction world, and now I'm uh, working sales for a startup, uh, basically. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big shift, and I'm getting used to it. Um, definitely one of the more challenging things I've done in my life, but after you know, I'm three months in here and I can, I'm super glad I made the decision and just kind of been through a lot of growth in the last few months and feel like I'm on the right trajectory. So. That sounds really exciting. And I, I mentioned Portland, um, you know, just before we began recording, I mentioned to one of our, one of our other viewers uh, who also has a show, uh, Mutant Fox, he runs a, uh, a, a streaming channel and also kind of a, kind of a tech channel and he's on Twitter as well. Um, mentioned, and he wasn't sure though if we were aware of this, Joe and I had talked about uh, infrastructure and stockpiling and a few episodes ago. And uh, one of our listeners, again, Mutant Fox, mentioned to us that there was some kind of chlorine shortage for water treatment out in uh, Portland, uh, Oregon, and maybe even more broad in that region. I, I don't know the, the full scope, but um, I looked into it a little bit. And basically, from what I can gather, um, one of the contributing factors is that there was a, a power disruption at a chlorine manufacturing plant. And... Um, Anytime I, I see a story like that or there's a shortage, I always go back to Nassim Taleb, anti-fragile, just like the most simple thing anybody can do to like start building some anti-fragility in your life or rather to even just start building some resilience in your life is to always have a little bit more than what you need <laughs> and preferably more than that. That way, if anything happens, you're, you're still good to go. Very good. Very good. Well, Jack, today we're continuing our discussion with the beginning of infinity. We're talking about uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12. And I thought, you know, before diving into each of those chapters specifically, why don't we kind of maybe set the stage a little bit um, with those uh, three chapters. So the, the first one is uh, the dream of Socrates. And, you know, in this chapter, uh, a kind of David Deutsch uh, writes a kind of a fictitious story um, about Socrates being approached by a, a deity in a, in a dream. And through that discussion, they come to explore the ways that humans obtain knowledge. And, you know, again, it follows in, along this lines of conjecture and criticism. And they uh, dive into a discussion about what separates societies that engage in that kind of behavior from societies that are very much against that kind of behavior. And they kind of set it up as between Athens and, and Sparta. So that would be chapter 10. Again, we'll get into that in a little more detail um, in just a moment. 
chapter 11, a really, a really easy read, right? I mean, just about the multiverse, how complicated it could it be. Um, and I, we'll definitely come, like I said, we'll get into this in more, in more detail in a moment. And, um, and that brings us, yeah. Right. The multiverse is real now. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, quite impressive. And then uh, chapter 12, which has us talking about this notion of bad philosophy and, and really um, a, a focus on the implications for bad philosophy in scientific societies, how bad philosophy hinders scientific growth, and uh, but broader than that as well, how it really just inhibits us. And he goes into a discussion about what does and doesn't make bad philosophy, and uh, we'll get into that definition um, as well. But let's start with with chapter ten, and let's start with the dream of Socrates. So just you know, I'm I'm, I'm interested in uh, kind of your thoughts off the bat about this chapter, what parts of it stood out to you, and um, you know, what did you take away from it? Well, so the this chapter 10 here was, for me, it was really interesting to read this because um, I thought like when we get toward the end here, one of the main takeaways, uh, you know, is this idea that our, um, that the, that like physical reality or the reality we experience, you know, is sort of a projection of the mind um, in the sense that, um Man, I feel like we should break down some more of the what's going on sure. in the, Absolutely. Uh, first, but but yeah. So um, in the chapter here, you know, you have uh, Hermes visits Socrates in a dream uh, where you know they'd gone to see the oracle, and while they're waiting for the oracle, uh, Hermes visits Socrates in the dream and starts kind of asking him questions, just sort of to, to challenge uh, Socrates' thought. Um, and as we get toward, uh, as they go through, just a number of back and forth um and get to uh shoot what's the what's the field of study that he mentions to plato afterward yeah um epistemology epistemology yeah, yeah okay, right sorry, yeah right. um which is like reason right yeah it's it's kind of it's the the notion how do we obtain knowledge how okay. do we actually how do we at- obtain knowledge yeah and so it, it gave the implication right so it basically says which from science is sort of proven to be true you know our mind is really almost projecting reality uh more so than you're experiencing it right so like you have these sensors in your eyes and you have ears as sensors um but it's really your brain that takes in all this information and creates the reality that you experience and so uh anything that we understand um is sort of starts from a guess of like what it could be. Right. And then through guesses and predictions, you're able to create a more and more accurate model of what are, whatever the actual physical world is. And it's uh, like, it kind of makes you question like, what is like, like fundamental truth and what is like, how do we have knowledge? Like we do, like, how do we even, how do, how do we acquire new knowledge, uh, given our constraints and like, why is it, how have we come so far? Like, it's incredible. It's been so accurate for so long. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I think that that's a really good preface for this. I'm, we, so many directions that this chapter goes into definitely, I feel like every time I say we cover a new chapter, I say this, but definitely this is a key chapter, uh, of the book. Um, you know, the first, the first maybe like, you know, half of the book was maybe even a little more, 
a little lighter. You know, it talks about creativity and about optimism and it's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, all this kind of stuff. And now it's like getting a little more serious. You know, it's like now mommy and daddy are coming home. It's time to put away the crafts and, you know, and create creativity time is over. You know, now mommy and daddy are home. They're talking about some, 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 some big ideas. And I think you notice that shift in the, in the, in the book with the chapter on optimism. Um, but, but this chapter really starts to, to, to drive home some of the points because as we'll get into in later chapters, having these ideas as cornerstones and how we approach the reality uh, has consequences. And if we have, as we'll get to in chapter 12, but when we have bad ideas, we have bad outcomes. And so I, I think that this chapter starts really starts to, to, to drive home that message because, and I really like this part too, just tying back into that idea of, you know, knowing what's real and what's not real is that this idea where, you know, at one point Socrates and, and uh, Hermes, who is a, is a, is a, a deity in, in, you know, Greek mythology, basically, um, are, are talking and Socrates is, is trying to figure out, it, are, am I really talking to a god or is it a dream? And they come to the realization that if you obtain a good idea, it doesn't matter where the idea came from. If it was a dream, if it was divine inspiration, if it was, you know, whatever it was, good ideas can come from unlikely sources and even sources that are, that are bad. You know, if someone is, you know, known to be a liar and this and that, and they happen to tell you something that ends up being true. It doesn't matter where the idea came from. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the, the ability of the idea to withstand criticism that determines the value of the idea. And I thought that was an interesting point. And then I, I also like kind of your discussion on, on this idea of, 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 you know, how, how our brain, you know, makes sense of the world around us. And there's a, there's a book that, that, that Joe and I have talked about maybe on, on one other show, but um, it's an interesting book. It's about neuroscience. It's called The Brain Inside Out. And in, in the book, the author makes a claim that the brain is a much more active creator, in a sense, of how we perceive the world. And that, you know, far from just being this hub that sits in our brain that just kind of accumulates sensory data, our brain is always in the process of doing little experiments and trying to understand the world through experimentation. And it, 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 it's a very interesting perspective on how the brain actually works because, you know, other ideas have the brain more as this very passive, you know, kind of sitting back and taking the world in. And this author is saying, no, absolutely not. The brain is, is, is actively, you know, using its vessel, its, its body to experiment with the world, to understand things and to create ideas about how the world should be. And then criticizing those ideas through these different experiments. Um, so a really neat tie-in, I thought, with uh, – with this book so far. And I think, you know, probably something that we'll, we'll do, you know, more in can more I, detail. Yeah. Can go I ahead, jump, go on, ahead. jump on that point right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So like what you're saying about the, um, how, you know, the brain is doing a lot while you're going through, well, it's really easy to see how much. So, all right. So I'm going to take a step back here. So another thing that I've been doing a ton the last few months is I've gotten like way into meditating and sort of, um, uh, really studying the mind, which is what I consider was, which is how I would really define meditating is just like being your, like just sitting still focusing on your breath and just watching the mind hmm. and seeing what it does. And I had this wild experience the other day where the only thing I could compare it to was like a time I took a lot of psilocybin and it was almost a, like a flip of reality 
where I sort of had this, and this, this is really trippy for me because I read this like three days after, like, like three or four days right. after this experience. And I, and I had this like uh, almost uh, experiential uh, uh, I, uh, that version of this, like my mind being what was creating reality rather than me experiencing reality direct. Like I, like I experienced that flip hmm. um, like from my perspective. And you can kind of see how this is true with the really, it's really easy if you just look around your room, like when your brain looks around this room, almost at like the room that you're in right now, almost everything in there is a human construct. Like these aren't things that exist in nature, like walls aren't, that's not a nature thing, right. doors, lamps, and, and we know what these things are and we know what they're called. Uh, and that's because of our, it's because of our brain, like overlaying on reality, like this has no name by the universe, you know, or the lamp has no name given by the universe. That's a, that's right. a human driven thing and driven by your brain. And so when you look at the world, you don't just see it for what it is. You see it for what we've created. Yeah. Which is a yeah. lot different, you know, like, because if you're just an objective observer, these things don't actually have names or aren't called in anything. And um, so I think that's really interesting as far as what this book, um, you know, just for me, for this chapter, um, goes to show and that, that's kind of was one of my takeaways was like yeah it's it's our as we move through the world um we have this overlay of like our, our we have our like the things we physically seeing but then also this overlay of knowledge that's incorporated yeah. into the world yeah that i think that last sentence really well put um and i wanted to actually so i'm, I'm going to go back to the i think is the, the book again and uh, the brain from the inside out really really a great book um but in the book, there's this idea that that tools, when when early man was first creating tools, what we were doing is we were conceptualizing something in our head and then using our material around us to actually construct it. And so in a way, something like a hammer is a word because it's just this idea that we've embodied in some physical form. And um it's one of those ideas in a book that I've read once and it's just really never left me that that was such, you know, such a neat way of, of putting it, this idea that, that tools are words that, you know, what we're doing is we have ideas and then we can actually put our ideas out into the world, you know? And, and again, it's, it's all, you know, it's, it's, you know, nothing mystical. It's just, you know, how do you build a hammer? You take a rock, put on a stick, but this idea of having this idea that if I put a rock on a stick, it'll be a more effective weapon that you have that idea. And then you do it by putting the rock on the stick. And now you have this weapon that you thought of and then made. And so when we look around us and we see, and you, you put it beautifully, when we see doors, when we see grooves, when we see, I'm looking out, I'm seeing cars in, 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 the, in the parking lot. None of these things just came about. These were all made by people using their brains to conceptualize, using a knowledge of physics and of, you know, chemistry and all this other things to conceptualize an idea and then actually building it. And as a result, there are these things. If, if, if we, you know, speculate for a moment, if only, if only Earth has life and there's no other life in the universe, there's a very, very, very good chance that on this planet, things exist that don't exist anywhere else. Like the Ford Motor Company or the watch on your wrist or the microphone that you're speaking into. These mm -hmm. things will just it come out of, of nature the way that like a rock or like, you know, waterfall or things that happen like through erosion or something. But these things take a mind, they take a level of intelligence to actually create. 
And as a result, we're able to create things that are radically different than anything else you'll ever find uh, in the world. And they're, and they're on here because we, we have a brain that we can, that we can actually, and I think David Deutsch mentions this in, in, a, in an earlier chapter, but this idea of what separates the way that genetics create knowledge versus the way that brains create knowledge. And essentially the difference is that brains can construct ideas in their head and criticize them without having to manifest anything physical. Whereas mm -hmm. genes have to go through, you know, they, like, because they can't, you know, conceptualize, they don't have brains, they can't think the way that, the way that, a, that, that, a, that a brain does. So for genetics, it's all right, this, this gene happens, this thing lives and either it reproduces or it doesn't, you know, it has to do the experiment in reality. And that takes a long time. Whereas your brain can think, you know, if I, uh, if I put that light switch there, I might cause a house fire. So I'm going to put it somewhere. We, we can work through, you know, things in our head. And as a result, you know, that's how we're able to, to think through, um, we're able to do some of the experimental work in our head, so to speak, without having to, to do it out in reality. And that's that, that saves some time and some effort. Um, I had one more thing I for sure wanted to say on this chapter, but I wanted to kind of give it back to you because I thought that was really well put. Your well, I was kind of laughing there on. because I, uh, my, my mic, I was looking at it and the clamp broke. So I had to kind of engineer. I don't know if you can see this. There it is. Sort of counterweight mechanism here to, to hold my mic up. Now let me let me tell you something. My so my life is a visualized it in my man. mind and it became true. Right. No. Right. Right. You, yeah. you built it. You built it. Um, yeah. I I know for a fact that that book on the bottom of that pile is the Goblet of Fire. Am I correct on that? Yeah, that was pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Boom, baby. Well, I had a Boom. okay, but there was a Harry Potter book. No, right. Time. So I had I had a private. So, so you did have some color. association. There. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, so I know that that red and black, or you know, maroon black, or whatever it is. I've seen that book so many freaking times. My my wife is a big Harry Potter fan. We make it work anyways. But um, <laughs> the last the last sentence of this chapter, I thought it, it, it's it's worth reading for verbatim um the way to converge with each other is to converge upon the truth now i've mentioned this to joe a few times uh that this book i think could serve a role of kind of being a a big tent you know so to speak that anybody can go underneath and try to start working together or whatever you want to call it and I, I thought, you know, as I was thinking through that, I was like, you know, why, why do I think that about this book and how would I, and then David Bush lays it out perfectly in that last sentence. We, everybody feels disjointed. We're not together. We're this other stuff. How do we come together? There's really only one way to use conjecture and criticism to converge upon reality, to converge upon the truth. It's, <laughs> I mean, there's a few people out there doing it. But it yeah. feels like a lot of people are just not even in the realm of uh, looking at the world that way. I agree with you. And I don't know uh, if, if you maybe, you know, you, if you ever did debate team in, in, in high school or anything. I did it for about a semester. Um, I was not very good. I lost everything. <laughs> I really lost. I mean, it was terrible. It was horrible. But I remember... You know, my, my wife and I were talking about this earlier last week, and it was this idea that um, usually we, we stop conversations 
where they should be where they should be begin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Normally we, we stop a conversation when people say, Oh, okay, we'll disagree to disagree. It's like in in conjecture criticism world, or if you will, in the debate team world, that's actually where the debate starts. You highlight the differences between the two opposing sides. You say, oh, I'm arguing at this point of view, you're arguing this point of view. You agree that you disagree, but then that's where the conversation starts. And then you try to, and of course in, in debate, reason I don't like debate is because you assume that one of the two rounds has the right answer. And in reality, as is maybe perhaps most often the case, both sides have it wrong. And the truth is something different and not, and, and not always in between the two starting, you know, this idea that the truth is in the middle. Sometimes other times it's totally, it's in a different ballpark, different universe in some cases. And so that's why I don't like debate. And it's also inherently combative because it's, you know, you're arguing against somebody. It's you versus them. I always hate that. I don't know if you have a pet peeve. I always hate when I'm on YouTube and I see something like, so-and-so destroys so-and-so. Destroys, and they're all dramatic. Yeah. And it's like, and, and usually it's like not even a destruction. It's just like, they made a good point. Like George destroyed. Peterson destroys SJW. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you search it, you'll have no less than like 10,000 videos. And like, oftentimes it's kind of like, did they really? Like, I don't even know if they were right. Did they really, did they really even destroy them in that? Yeah, no, it's, it's just a... It's totally but, subjective. I, mean, and, I think that's, that's a really good point you make. And I think that, um, I actually, this is funny because I was listening to a Jordan Peterson podcast uh, yesterday. I finished up this morning. Really good one. Uh, actually, most recent one he has out. I can't remember the guy's name who it was with, but I'm definitely going to look into it more because he was really interesting. But they were talking about how you can uh, debate in either the spirit of knowledge or the spirit of victory. And yeah. so like a lot Hopefully. of people debate in this, it's in this, with the spirit of trying to get victory. But if you did debate like underneath the logos, you're 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 really like trying to like you're separating the idea from yourself. And this I like because ideas are sort of entities that exist like like I think there's I think one, if I were to say one of the major problems just kind of in the I can't really speak for the whole world, but certainly the US is ideas have become people's identities. Hmm. Instead of, uh, which it should not be that way, because if an idea is your identity, then it becomes right. impossible to criticize. Yeah. Ideas exi- exist separate of you, and then they, they, they need to be in the realm of criticism. Ideas that like, aren't allowed to be criticized, while it doesn't necessarily make them untrue, it certainly makes it so there's no way to know they're true. They're true. <laughs> well put. Well put. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's spot on. And I, and I, I think, I think, um, I think one of the, one of the things is this idea that you're absolutely right. We shouldn't put our ideas with our identity. We should all be trying to identify, if you will, as people that are trying to seek the truth through, through conjecture mm-hmm. and uh, criticism. Um, I was making fun of this I mean, I'm not making fun of it. I mean, it was of course horrible what happened to the to the Jews in Nazi Germany. But that basically, I mean, it was you know you had it would have been impossible to convince the Nazi Party, you know, that what they were thinking was wrong because they were closed off to that criticism. Mm-hmm. And that would be true, I'm sure, of the white supremacists today or something along. I mean, I don't know anything about those people, but I would imagine it's very similar to that. That it's just it's it's immediately closed off from criticism. You can't even challenge it. Because to challenge mm-hmm. it is, like you're saying, a threat to the identity of the person. 
Um, which actually I think ties into with the notion of bad philosophy, which we'll come back to, but essentially a bad philosophy is a philosophy that closes itself to criticism. And why is it bad? Because then it can't improve. It can't improve. You have no way of, of improving an idea if you can't criticize the idea. It can't mm-hmm. be improved upon. Um, I, I also want to said one other thing that I thought was really interesting, this idea that ideas kind of exist on their own. That's definitely a, a big part in the beginning of infinity when they talk about memes and how these ideas really do live inside of our minds. They kind mm-hmm. of hop from mind to mind. But if you, and like, I think an example he gives is like the idea of a joke, right? If you hear a joke and you tell it to somebody else, that joke's now multiplied itself and it can spread throughout, you know, the world. Now I was thinking, you know, really, you know, citizens of, of a country, are, you know, have many responsibilities to be sure. But one of them is that we have to be vessels for good ideas that are in our country. We have to be able to explain and defend good ideas in our country. And I, I, I don't know that we can do that. I, I really don't. Um, I don't know that I could do it. Um, but I think we should be able to. And I think that's the value of, of a subject like social studies or, you know, sometimes they call it, they call it civics. Why are those classes important? Because every society will be tempted by bad ideas. And unless you're able to defend the good ideas that you have happened to stumble upon, nothing makes a good idea invincible. Bad ideas overtake good ideas all of the time. There's no such thing as, 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 um, as a nation being immortal from becoming worse than it was in the past. There's no guarantee that things improve forever or any other such nonsense. Things can always get worse and good ideas can, over, can always be overpowered by bad ideas. The example in this chapter was when Sparta defeated Greece, mm-hmm. even though or, uh, Athens, even though, you know, supposedly Greece was, I guess I'm saying Greece, Athens was this, you know, more open society where they were engaging, you know, it was essentially the golden age of Athens. You had, you know, this conjecture and criticism working well. It didn't matter. The Spartans still destroyed it, even though they were a totally closed society. Um, but I was thinking about that a lot about, uh, you know, how incumbent upon us it is. And I don't think we realize this when we're young. I mean, I certainly did not. I mean, I don't know, maybe you did, but when you're in a high school and you're studying and you're studying social studies, I don't think you're thinking, you know, I need to be able to defend why, you know, something like a constitution matters, why something like the right to vote matters, why something, whatever it is, you know, we need to be able to defend these things well. And um, I don't always know that that weight is, is present in the classroom uh, the way that it should be. I think it's, it's like a subject that you have to pass, right? Here's a test and you take the test and it kind of is mm-hmm. on. But really, these are very important subjects. Um, but I, I don't know that we're giving them their, their due respect. I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe you disagree, but... Uh, no, I, I agree completely. And I actually really hadn't... That kind of, you just kind of inspired a thought um, a little bit there because it, it does seem like... Uh, you know, as a lot of people are getting out of uh, college and in their 20s and then having not really hmm, having been taught a lot about the world, but not really trying to I, I think there's a lot of people that have been taught a lot about the world, but not really tried to like look in and challenge the things they've been told. Right. Right. Um, and so like you're you're engineering deg- degree, right? okay yeah so so am i and so when we're in school like everything we are taught is like provably true right 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 and so and so you kind of start to develop this engineer's way of looking in the world is like 
you know, it's kind of a series of problems and solutions. Like I even take the engineering mindset into the sales world now. And like, the problem is, is how do I, you know, how do I get customers? Right. And then I, and I, I like look at it from like, here's the problem. What are the variables I have in order to find the most optimal solution? And so from that lens, um, the world kind of becomes like a solvable problem. Hmm. Um, but I think that's, that's, um, and it's not the only workable lens. Obviously there's, there's many lenses that, right. that you can, you can work through the world, but there's a lot of people that start to realize that, uh, the government and all the rules are kind of a human created construct. Hmm. And their initial right. reaction to that is they try to look at the motivations uh, or their perceived motivations, of the people in power that created the rules, hmm. right? So you, and, and, um, which isn't really the right question to ask. The right question to ask is what are the effect the current rules right. are having? Right. Right. Because like you said before, it doesn't matter if somebody told you something as a complete joke, if it turned right. out to be true, it's yeah. true. And so when you have this lens of trying to figure out what the strategy was to get to where we are and then like undermine it, you're you're really missing the point because you need to look what's actually the actual cause and effect are. And it doesn't matter who made the rules in that regard. What matters is what they're doing and then what are the practical steps we can take to change them to get the results we want. I think that's a hundred percent correct. I think that's really well put. And um, you know, you're actually tying really well into some other things I wanted to talk about. Uh, <laughs> I really, I, I thank you for doing that. I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar. I, I mean, you probably have heard it's it's a it's a, a poem or a song. The revolution will not be televised. If you're yeah. it's a very famous kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. So that's from that's from uh, Bill Scott Heron. And um, you know, I, I listened to a um, uh, not really even an interview, but like a really brief kind of you know, it looked like someone had him on like a cell phone camera, and they were talking to him about you know that work. And he said something that I thought was really interesting and um, really kind of caused me to kind of like sit back and, you know, really, it, it was, it was, it was interesting what he said. And um, he said, blacks, I, I'm not going to get the, the, the whole quote, right, but more or less something like this. He said, you know, blacks are, are really the only Americans because being born American for them didn't matter. They had to use the system to fight for their rights. Basically they had to use the march. They had to use the court system. They had to use free speech. To, to actually get what they wanted. This would have all been, you know, during the 60s fighting for civil rights. Mm -hmm. And you know, I thought that was really, I thought that really was in a way, of course it would have been a better world had blacks not had to do that. No one disagrees with that. But the fact that, um, that black Americans could use the system as, as flawed as it was to improve the system I think says a lot about a the leadership you had in the black community at that time, but then also something about the power and the value of things like a legal system, free speech, the right to protest, because there are people who depend on these things and, and have used these things historically to affect change. And I think it says a lot about, and again, this gets into this notion of conjecture or criticism, but it says a lot about a system um, where people who are disenfranchised can still use that system to, to improve uh, their lives. And um, now I was just thinking about that a lot. I was just thinking about, uh, you know, the way that, you know, people have depended 
um, on on these systems for progress, really. And um, you know, I thought it was a very powerful idea. And, if, and I'm not a, a historian on, on that era, but you know, definitely the revolution will not be televised is a is a very interesting piece and an, 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 an important piece. And mm-hmm. um, but I thought that, that 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 idea that you know that that Black Americans really had to put mm-hmm. you know their rights through the paces you know that these weren't just things on a mantle you have freedom of speech you have the right to protest you have whatever it is great there's a no no we need to use those we need to actually put this system to work because what we have now isn't good enough and um i thought that was just very powerful i really thought that that was very powerful for him mm-hmm. yeah that, that i mean the whole civil rights movement is is a super powerful thing and yeah absolutely amazing let me, I, I have this idea that, um, you know, we always, America being supposedly, and I think working towards this all the time, but this idea of being a nation of ideas versus a nation of ethnicity, really, you know, anybody can become an American, you know, once you become a citizen, you're, you're as an American as anybody else. And um, I mean, other countries have that too, but in, in some way, because I don't really have any French ancestry, you know, I, I can't really become French. Like I really, I I can't do that, but in a way, anybody can become American. And, um, you know, I think, I think that shows us the value of ideas, but more importantly, the value of a system that allows ideas to improve upon themselves. And so, you know, earlier when I was saying this idea of of a big pit of philosophy, because I think any country would, would, would value from this, but because America is a country of ideas, we have to have a process of conjecture and criticism in place for that system to work. Otherwise, our ideas, as you were saying earlier, they won't improve. We need mm-hmm. to have, we need to become, we don't want to identify with any idea in particular, but I do think we want to identify with a process. I think we do want to identify with the conjecture and criticism process because that is a tool that we can use for improving the ideas that we have competing between the different minds of people in this country. And really, you know, every two years, what really matters is how these ideas manifest themselves in the minds of the voters. And that's, you know, that's the battleground, you know, the memes that are in place uh, during voting times is really, you know, a, a motor that our, that our country runs, you mm-hmm. know, every two years or so. And um, so I, I, I think that that process is important. And I think that this book gets people back on, on that track. Um, I've been talking a lot. Let me give it back to you. Um, Other ideas from this chapter, other ideas um, from the dream of Socrates. Well, um, I actually think that's, that covers it uh, pretty good for me. I mean, I I do really, I do really enjoy what you said about, yeah, the U S has this self-correcting system. Like that's, you know, it's the way it's built. The, The fact that, yeah. And I think you gave the perfect example with the civil rights movement. Um, and, you know, it's like, we want to, like, that's kind of why it's also allowed America to be so, uh, like thrive so much. Well, one, because we have, we live on like the best land in the world. <laughs> I mean, not just like agriculturally yeah, right, uh, right. as far as what can be developed. <laughs> right. That's an advantage. We can't right. like deny that. No, no, no. There's Finding all the cool and natural gas that you could hope for is uh, not a, not a small contributor to the historical success of the United States and the oil yeah. as well. Yes, that was yeah. very important. Yes, yes. Yeah, so so that, that, that that's definitely plays a role. Yeah. Um, but, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, that's pretty much sums up the chapter for me. I mean, I think that that's and it kind of it was really compelling for me and kind of opened my eyes to um, how much it really is like with debate that you you need to do it uh, underneath like while following the logos and and not victory, right? right. Like you have to you're in pursuit of truth and um uh philosoph i mean and just like and philosophically being correct is uh sort of necessary if you're gonna make any progress and and the other the other thing that i think this incorporates is you have to have an honest assessment of where you are before you can determine anywhere where you're going if you have an idealized destination but that doesn't take into account the current situation, then the only way you're going to get there is uh, (laughs) through physical force. I think that's well put. Yeah. I, uh, well, good. So then let's, let, let's close out this chapter and I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring it back to the uh, Scott Heron just real quick, because it's actually, you know, fairly prescient for this chapter. Um, uh, an, an idea in the beginning of infinity is that all observations are theory laden, that we, we only understand what we observe because we have an idea about what we're observing. Mm-hmm. And, um, it actually ties in with, this this work revolution will not be televised and in the you know in the uh, interview that i'm talking about now he goes on to explain what that title meant and again paraphrasing not quoting verbatim but you know the, the revolution will not be televised was given that phrase because the first steps in the revolution happened in someone's mind they happened in our minds they had to be realized and the people had to realize that something wasn't right and um there's nothing that you can just show someone that will automatically make them change their mind. If they have an idea that the system that we're observing is good and it won't matter what you show them, you need to show them. Now, maybe there are some exceptions to that, to be sure. I think video is powerful, but even still, even still, no matter how powerful the imagery, there's always a way to rationalize what you're seeing. Um, if you're not willing to change the ideas that are that are that are affecting um, our observations of the world, and um, and so how do we do that by conjecture and criticism, by allowing our ideas to be challenged by other people, and um, and also just by ourselves. And you know, I think that it's possible to do that as well. Um, let's transition <laughs> to the multiverse now. Oh. I've, I've mentioned this before. Uh, there was a, a, another show. There's actually at least two shows that have, that have covered, I'm sure multiple, but that have covered the beginning of Infinity. Um, and I, I, listened to, I listened to one, um, and I, I, I'm skipping on the name, but uh, basically it was funny because in their, in their show, these obviously were two smart guys, and they were like, yeah, I think the multiverse are probably not going to cover that much because it's a lot to go into. And I remember when, when Joe and I first started going into this, I was kind of like, yeah, we might do a similar thing. <laughs> this is a, kind of a heavy chapter to go into. Um, I I had an idea for this chapter, but before I give my idea, I want to hear your idea. Uh, you know, guess, guess go first. Tell me, tell me your thoughts on the multiverse. This is like a chapter 11. We're talking about the beginning of infinity and uh, joining me this week as our special guest host is uh, Jack Ernest. But uh, give me, give me your take on the multiverse and uh on that chapter because it was not a light read (laughs) oh i am convinced on the multiverse after reading the chapter 
Um, so I, I'll, I'll do my best to summarize and then you correct me if, uh, if uh, there's anything. hell no <laughs> i'm gonna be nodding along anything you're saying is i have no freaking idea what the hell is going on in this chapter no go go ahead go yeah. ahead. i'm interested so, in this so uh, let me ask you this be- before you start i know you said engineering degree what mechanical electrical, what i was mechanical mechanical okay. Mm-hmm. okay so fair amount of physics and that degree and you know yeah we did a lot of physics thermo fluids sure. um did, did you find of, yourself pulling on that knowledge when you were reading this chapter? Did you try to connect it back to school or anything like that? Or did you ever do any so, like any quantum mechanics? Like this so quantum mechanics has yeah. really fascinated me from yeah. the perspective of um, um, like how much school study of quantum mechanics. I think we did like we touched on it in like third term physics. It wasn't a whole time. Sure. Sure. Um, but as far as like exp- uh like conceptually and um, uh, just kind of like understand, like having looked at experiment experiments, I've done a lot of that in my free time and just looked oh, wow. at the experiment and like, sure. you know, I haven't like run any on my own, but just watch YouTube videos. Right, just right, right. Them. Uh, I started doing it after I watched this podcast with, um, uh, uh, it was Roger Penrose on, um, Lex Friedman, and uh, he was talking about how he thinks that uh, he said he thinks that the we're, we will understand what consciousness is, like where the limitations of uh, uh, quantum physics are, and what we don't understand about consciousness, hmm. and, and somehow those will tie together. So that made me really interested in looking yeah. at quantum mechanics, and it's really weird the provable experiments. Yeah that they've that they've come up with that like literally adding an observer will cause light particles to define themselves and if you remove the observer they remain in this undefined state um and it's really not an easy thing to do to describe these experiments with words and no visuals Mm. but if you just look up like then slit experiments and and watch a few videos it conceptually it starts to make sense pretty quickly the other pattern they noticed um was with when they were measuring like electron spin uh basically they were uh measuring the probability that an electron should come out with a certain spin value right and in theory like and they do like in in, in, in like based on probability or like the 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 uh, quantum mechanics equations, uh, the value you would get would be like some uh, sinusoidal thing that's like not quite two thirds. It's like it's like seventy three percent or something like that, because mm. um, it's it's not a discrete plot. But based it, but in real life, you would expect it to be two thirds because of basic probability laws. Mm. But when you return this experiment, you get you get the quantum mechanics result and mm. not what would be explained by classical right. probability or mechanics. Yes. yes. And so um, it's, it's super fascinating in that regard, but this, this chapter doesn't really talk into that part of the quantum mechanics, but what it does talk about, or well, it does, but it's uh, not those experiments directly. Um, instead, it talks about, uh, hmm. Well, the easier way to describe it is the best example they gave for the multiverse being real. And this goes back to uh, the beginning of the book and throughout the book, you know, this, there's this idea that uh, 
good, good explanations have reach, right? Right. So if you have a very specific explanation, like for instance, the example they give in the book is, you know, because the earth is tilted at 22 degrees and uh, uh, rotates around the sun, like we can expect, we can predict the seasons. We can uh, also predict that above a certain latitude, it will be sun six months a year and uh, dark six months a year. And all these additional predictions come out from this like super specific explanation which you couldn't get, you know, like because the, the original explanation is like, you know, Persephone uh, follows the sun across right. the sky and you just can't extrapolate um, as much information. And so what uh, David Deutsch is saying is that because of experiments run in quantum mechanics, the, the, the clearest solution is that the multiverse does exist. And that what the implication of that is, is that every conceivable um, idea within like story or thing you can conceptualize within the laws of physics exists. You're right. Which right. Nuts, which is like nuts. And the, the, the proof he gives, which I thought was the most compelling one was the quantum computer, which basically the idea here is that you have, so you get 10. So they can, I think they're up to 10 is what he said right now. So you take these 10 quantum particles um, that sort of go through this black box computation phase. And when you, and uh, so there's this idea of uh, like, there's, there's congruency in the universe. And so uh, particles become entangled in the sense that if they're going to be in the same universe, like if one has interacted with another and then like as a result needs to behave a certain way, it will. But, and so like when you hear about entangle, entanglement and instantaneous, uh, um, like instantaneous information exchange it's because like when you observe particle a particle b that it had been entangled with will define its state instantly as well and so quantum computing takes the fact or uh, basically takes into the account that if you put this through the black box uh, the particles will go through all possible pathways that they could and all the ways they could interact with each other but but return to some initial state before the end. Um, and basically because they converged, like all of those universes will converge too. And it's still congruent with our world because we didn't uh, interact with it, right? Because it was in this black box. And so it split and it split and it split. And then it came back together before the end and returns this result. And so like that was really compelling to me because how else could you explain the resultant computing power that occurred over the duration of the time if not every single possible um, pathway for the particles to take existed, even though when we observe it, um, they would or any one of, they would only have time for one. Yeah, that's mind-blowing. Um, I don't know how well I explained that. No, <laughs> well, I, I won't improve upon it. Um, Maybe I'm going to grab a book that I really like. Give me just one second. Okay. All right. One second. And maybe right on, right on the right, right on time. So I, I also kind of had a, um, a, uh, after school, you know, kind of, <clears throat> kind of interest in quantum mechanics. And I was going to say, you know, we're talking about, about I, I will say one of the things that David Deutsch criticizes is this idea of the uh, Copenhagen interpretation, and um, 
you know, what, what David Deutsch suggests as a replacement is um, a, a multiverse explanation, although I think it might also be called many worlds explanation. I think those might be the same thing, but for anybody listening to this, there's, there's a lot in this chapter. It would be very hard to give a good summary of, of the chapter because it, it involves some, some tricky visuals that are, that are hard to get off, uh, get off uh, over the air like this. Um, so it's not what I thought I would do is I would, I would give um, a couple of tips that I have found useful for, for quantum mechanics self-study. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I will say, and I'm, I'm sure Jack, you've encountered no, no shortage of this as well. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of bogus BS that goes with quantum mechanics with, with like mysticism and like crystal healing and all this other silliness that goes on. And I would say, you know, one of the, the first thing is like when you get into, into quantum mechanics is like try to protect yourself from like bad metaphors that people will give for it. Um, you know, Scott Adams always talks about, you know, had about how bad analogies are. And uh, mm -hmm. there's definitely no shortage of, you know, people using analogies in, in quantum mechanics. Um, I would also say, and this is maybe a slightly, maybe not the, the first thing that you would encounter when you start studying QM in like school. So like my, my exposure to quantum mechanics was in, was in physical chemistry. So, you know, took that as like a senior maybe, or maybe a junior in college. Um, and they go a little bit, and again, you start with like the history of it. So like, you know, double slit experiment and, you know, so on and so forth, the debates between Einstein and, and, uh, and Schrodinger and, you know, back and forth, um, or whoever was in those debates. But I would say, the key thing to wrap your head around when you're first starting quantum mechanics is to understand um, what actually makes it different than classical mechanics. And what, 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 are, what are the things that happen in a quantum mechanics experiment that are unexplainable by classical mechanics? And to kind of give people a, a, a teaser, if you will, on a place to start would be to search two things on YouTube or on Google that will clearly explain at least one aspect, you know, really kind of a, of a, of a central aspect of what, of what differentiates quantum mechanics from the classical predictions. What, what can classical mechanics not explain that we observe in quantum mechanics? And what they would search or what anybody who would want to know is what they would search is what's called a Bell's game, B-E-L-L -L apostrophe S. And then Subsequent with that as well, and you'll see, you know, be on, on the same page or in the same video, this notion of Bell's inequality. And so, you know, basically Bell's inequality, from what I remember, is the outcome of a, of a Bell's game. But I'm, I'm trying to leave it as, as kind of a cliffhanger, more to give myself the leverage and not having to explain it because I would not do a very good job. Um, I, think, I think it was either maybe Feynman or I think it was Feynman, but you know, if, if you know something, you, you can, you can teach it. I cannot teach this. I do not know it. I'm not pretending to know it, but I would say starting, start with Bell's game, start with Bell's inequality um, to really wrap your head around, you know, precisely what is it that quantum mechanics entails that cannot be predicted from classical mechanics? Because um, I will just say that um, and Jack mentioned this earlier, things like entanglement, um, are really unexplainable in, a, in, a, in, in kind of the, the you know, pre-quantum mechanics classical physical description, but that there are experiments we can do where the outcomes are completely unexplainable from classical mechanics. Except for by the multiverse. 
Well, right. It's so, right, right, exactly. Right. It's so, right, right. But even that is different than the Newtonian conception of mm-hmm. of, of, of physics. Yeah, yeah. So, so I would say start start with those two things. Um, you know, start with you know David Deutsch's criticism of, of of the Copenhagen interpretation. You know, very much challenging the idea that. Um, you know, really, I would say what, you know, David Deutsch advocates is a kind of realism that, you know, that reality exists and that it's real and that, um, and that uh, you know, challenging the notion of the, the Copenhagen interpretation, which was this, 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 this probabilistic, you know, there were entities that existed only in a probabilistic state. And, you know, the multiverse rebuttal to that is, you know, all of these things exist in kind of a certain proportion. So, you know, 20% of the universe has experienced this outcome, other 20% experience this outcome, and so on and so forth. And that you don't know what universe you're in, you know, until you do the experiment, basically. So something like that. But um, I was going to give a shout out too, to a book that I found. I haven't read this book cover to cover, but I've read you some portion of it. I really enjoy it. It's called Quantum Chance. And it's written by uh, Nicholas. I'm going to, I'm not going to say it, but I'm going to guess his last name is Gassin, G-I-S-I-N. But in this book, he explains Bell's game, Bell's inequality, and you know precisely what is different about quantum mechanics versus classical. Because when you start studying quantum mechanics and they have all these experiments that they're telling you about, it's, it's easy to miss the bigger picture. And, and the bigger picture is that there are outcomes in a, in a quantum mechanical experiment that are, are unexplainable in the Newtonian framework. And so I would say really, really lock in on that. Um, and I think a Bell's game, B-E-L-L apostrophe S, is a, is a good place to, to start. Um, what else is going to say? Yeah, I said, protect yourself from bad analogies, bad metaphors. You know, I, so many people on YouTube, you know, change your vibration, you know, be whatever. It's always like, you know, stay away from that nonsense. <laughs> stay away from that. Um, and then, yeah, check out, if you're looking for a book, again, not a light read, but, you know, challenging, fun, interesting, check out Quantum Chance by, by Nicholas Cassin. And it really, it's, it sets the stage for, what I would say, what the what these stakes are uh, in, in quantum mechanics. What does it tell you that you are not going to get from a Newtonian description? Beyond that, I'm hesitant to say anything more about this chapter because I really don't want to mislead the, 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 the listeners. And I would just say that if you're interested in this, check out the book getting an affinity, you know, go buy it, read it. Um, and then try to work through these ideas on your own because it is something that is, uh, <laughs> it's pretty mind bending, not easy to do. And, um, you know, I definitely left that chapter with a couple of questions of my own, you know, I, I you know, hopefully one day we'll get a chance to reach out to David Deutsch and, you know, talk to him about this. And it'd be, it'd, it'd be fun to talk about that chapter in particular, because, um, there's a lot there that I think is worth. Well, one of the implications, yeah. like you said, if, like every physical possible, uh, like every conceivable idea that lies within uh, the laws of physics will occur. That means right. every book you've ever read that lies like within the realm of physics is a true story somewhere. Right. Well, I think we gave the example of, you know, kind of like a joke, but like, like a rom-com or something. Right. So like, yeah, like that could be true. Like, you know, all these different iterations. Of, He's not of saying whatever. it could be true. No, no, right. It is no, right. It that's right. True. That's right. <laughs> right. 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 If it's allowed by physical law, then, then it yeah. won't occur. And um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think it's good to let, you know, it's always like you read a, a chapter and a book like that. And it's kind of funny. Cause like you read this chapter, right. 
all this stuff. And it's, you think, is it true? Is it not? Who fucking knows? And it's like, and I still have to wake up tomorrow at 7 a.m. to go to work. It's like, there's like this interesting, you know, kind of like tug where it's like, I think deep down, we all know that this really is, you know, being alive is this truly, you know, interesting experience. I mean, if you really just, if you really kind of just like take a moment and like, all right, for the next 10 seconds, I'm going to just re- reflect on the idea that I am actually alive, that I'm living in this physical universe, that like I'm composed of these elements that came from the stars and that there are these laws that govern all this. If we all just take a moment to like, it's just a little bit of space and to reflect on that. Um, it's a, uh, it's bizarre that we don't spend more time doing it. I always think there's a great kind of, you know, quote or, you know, lecture or rant, I don't know what you call it, but from, from Sam Harris where he's like, you know, something to the effect of we're all living our lives doing all of these things. And at the same time, we're just completely ignoring the fact that one way we'll die, that one day we'll die and our minds could just like go to oblivion. I mean, like we just don't ever, you know, think about the weight of that. And, um, I think it's a similar thing when we read a book like this on like you know, quantum mechanics or like relativity is just as weird and everything. And we have experiments that show that this stuff is that, that, that the, the, the outcomes are true. Of course, we're still improving the ideas that explain the outcomes. And that's, you know, that's the real, that, that's the science in, in a sense, but you know, we, we just live in this world that just has, um, you know, things that are, that, that are so counterintuitive and even just being alive is counterintuitive. I mean, this, the odds of that are all tiny and, um, and then like the next day we go to work and the next day we, you know, go to pick up our dry cleaning. And the next day we are mad because the line at the gas station is long. So it's like, we have this like duality where it's like, we understand the grand story at work and we're mad because Blockbuster run out of business. I mean, it's like, we have like both going on at the exact same time. I think that's, I think that's a really good point to bring up. And actually the, yeah, I think uh, there's actually, there is like a study done or something I read and also can tell you tell from experience is that cultures that think about death more often are typically happier. Hmm. Uh, and like I read that it was like Bhutan, which is like, you know, not a low GDP country. And I'm sure you've heard of them before because they're like rated the happiest country in the oh. world, <laughs> but they have a, um, but one of their, when they're growing up, they are taught to like consider their own death every day. And, uh, that's something over the last few months that I don't know why I really got obsessed with this idea and really just like, I just been like hung up on it and like it caused me to like really go through, like really reflect on my life to like, you know, contemplate the fact that, well, it, it could, I mean, it's going to end. It doesn't just stick around forever. And it sort of made me face a lot of these things about my being and what I was doing. And like, I sort of, I kind of told you I had this, you know, experience in meditating, which I think was the culmination of all the events or of all of all of this thinking. And it's kind of flipped the world on me. And like my, my the fear of death has gone down uh, basically to zero. Oh. Um, uh, just, uh, just because I, it like, like I'm, I, I can't describe it, but it feel, but I feel like I understand death and what it is. 
And I think everyone is capable of doing it, but it's it, the answer isn't in the external world. It's, it's, you, you got to do a lot of self-reflecting and meditation. And, um, and my, my mental state is like been off the charts since this, like a couple of weeks ago and just the world's a lot clearer. So I'd encourage everybody to think about it. Yeah. Although, you finally do an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I, I'm always reminded of, uh, and I, I've heard, a, I've heard a few people make this comment, both, both are, are authors, but this idea, well, one of them is Nassim Taleb. And then uh, the other is uh, Michael Schellenberger. And um, they both, you know, I, I don't know that they both say it the exact same way, but you know, that this idea that, you know, people are, are kind of instinctually driven for a for a certain kind of immortality and that there's like healthy drives for mortality and then like others where it becomes like a perversion but you know a lot of people like having kids is a way of kind of like living beyond yourself like you you die but your kids live on and like you kind of continue in that way or like another way is that you like you write a book you know it's like shakespeare died however many hundred years ago but his his, his work still lives among us and so it's like there's there's these interesting avenues of, of, of wanting to have, you know, all that I think are all healthy impulses that you want to have impact and you, you know, it, you, you want to be kind of, you want to be a part of the, of, of the show forever. But, you know, of course that's impossible at least now. And you know, I think probably for, for a while into the future, at least it'll be impossible. And so we, we kind of accept, it's like, look, you know, I, I can't be who I am forever, but, if I write a book, if I create an idea, if I create something that, you know, that kind of lives outside of myself, then um, it's kind of a healthy avenue in, in some way for those kind of impulses. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, I would say uh, the value of a book like this is that it gives you a lot to think about, but it's, it's interesting how quickly you know, when, we're, when we're engaging in our day-to-day -day lives that we forget these big ideas that I'm sure most people have. Um, you know, they, they, they stumble upon these big ideas and then they, they not, I shouldn't even say they, we, I me, mean, I do this too. We, um, quickly forget them or quickly forget, forget their impact. I wanted to transition real quick, Jack. I wanted to go to our movie review this week from our official R and R film correspondent, <laughs> but before doing so, any final thoughts on chapter 11? I know we, we left this one a little more vague, I think appropriately. It's a, it's a heavy chapter. And, uh, like I said, I know at least one other show that also left this chapter a little vague, and I, I understand why. It's a lot to unpack, but um, any other ideas on this chapter before we move on to our movie review? No, I think that's good for me. All right, wonderful. Well, today's film review is, uh, again, from our official R&R film correspondent, and today we're talking about No Sudden Move, which is available on HBO Max. What's it about? A couple of low-level crooks in 1950s Detroit are hired to babysit an accountant's family while the accountant is forced to steal valuable documents from his boss's safe. When the plan goes haywire, they attempt to figure out who hired them and why in order to stay alive and set themselves up with the biggest possible score. Is it good? Definitely. Which isn't a surprise when you consider it's Steven Soderbergh's film, Soderbergh is one of the best and most prolific filmmakers of the last three decades, and there's no genre he's more steeped in than the heist film. He made the first three Oceans movies, 
Logan Lucky, and his masterpiece, 1998's Out of Sight. There isn't a director better suited for this material, and he delivers once again. Like those films, No Sudden Move has a sense of fun, finding humor in characters' desperation or brief moments of absurdity, as when a woman has a blanket placed over her head so one of the criminals can relax and take his mask off. But it digs into its noir trappings in Detroit setting in a way that differentiates itself from Soderbergh's other papers. Double crosses and ulterior motives abound to the extent that I rewatch a couple of scenes to keep things straight. And there's a sense of fatalism to the, to, through, to the proceedings, a pervasive doubt that Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro's petty criminals can really pull off their scheme without consequences. This might be their big break, or they may be trapped in a world where things rarely work out for those who don't already hold power. Something hinted at in the mentions of redlining and black neighborhoods being raised even as Detroit boomed under the auto industry. What makes the movie work so well, save from one on-the-nose monologue from a Soderbergh favorite making a cameo, is, the, is that the film makes its thematic points without distracting from the plot. In addition, a uniformly killer cast that also includes David Harbour, Ray Liotta, John Hamm, and Brendan Fraser shade in the characters with added depth and Soderbergh always want to experiment, shot the whole thing using wide-angled period piece lenses on modern cameras, producing an almost fisheye effect that gives the film a unique look. It's not quite the peak of crime capers or Soderbergh's best work, but it's still one of the highlights of 2021 so far. Grade B+. Other films to watch. For more Soderbergh, out of sight. For another fun noir set in the same universe as Out of Sight, Jackie Brown. And for another crime film heavily influenced by its period setting, check out L.A. Confidential. Um, have you seen that movie by chance? Have you seen uh, No Sudden Move? <laughs> I am. If you could pretty much ask me any movie and I will not have seen it. <laughs> Always good to have solid banter on the film after, uh, after we do the review. Um, I, I unfortunately, I, <laughs> I, I'm pretty convinced that I want to watch it now. That was a pretty good review. I, I, I like Soderbergh. Um, I have tried to watch some of his movies. They're always interesting. Um, and I, I, I have not seen this one, but I, I look forward to watching it. I did want to mention, you know, for anybody who likes, um, anybody who likes um, films that tie into that theme, I know that I, I haven't seen this film, so I don't know if this is a, a, a central theme or more, more of a background place, but um, there's, a, there's a good movie out called, I think it's called Mother Brooklyn or something like that. Um, and uh, stars has Bruce Willis in it, along with um, Edward Norton in it. But um, that movie also touches on, I think, housing discrimination as well. Um, and uh, for, a, for a book on housing discrimination, check out The Color of Law, which is by, um, oh, what's his name? I think, well, I, I won't get the author's name. <laughs> good, banter, good banter. No, check out it's 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 a good book on the subject called The Color of Law, and um, 
definitely worth reading about. But I, I, I the, 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 the period pieces that do good world building and that, you know, that sets the backdrop always make for, for good films and, uh, you know, always uh, have, um, you know, these, these important contributions of those effects into the story. So I, I look forward to watching this film as well. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe Joe on his, while he's uh, gallivanting about may, may check it out as well. So very good. Well, Jet, that brings us to chapter 12. Chapter 12, and now we're talking about bad philosophy. And again, kind of highlighting in this book, this book, it takes a, a fairly heavy science bias. In other words, the, the, the subjects that the author uses to explain his points often have to do with, with topics that would be considered science. And so the actual chapter of the, of, the, of, the, of the title of the chapter is A Physicist's History of Bad Philosophy with some comments on bad science. And um, anyways, let's, let's open up this one the same way we did before, your kind of initial takes on it, your thoughts on it, and um, your impressions. Yeah, so he basically starts out, or George starts out um, sort of comparing how um, if you look at something like philosophy and the history of philosophy, it's often recommended that you go read these original works to sort of see the inspiration for ideas and that, that it's important to do because you can kind of see where the differences are, where these disagreements are and helps you sort of, um, uh, and, and that's, and that's useful when you're talking about philosophy. If you're like trying, like you kind of need to do that with philosophy, just kind of the nature of that field. Um, however, with physics, it doesn't really matter. Um, you, I mean, having learned just so many equations by, you know, people, I mean, they're, they're, by, you know, even ones that were developed fairly recently, like Euler's equations and stuff like that, um, you don't really learn the history of how they discovered. You just get the equation and it works. And so you don't need to dive into the, like, you never dive into the sciences that failed because they failed. But, you know, obviously this is something you do with philosophy um and so uh the other concept is goes back to uh, actually chapter 10 and the, uh um the yeah this the epistemology approach where these ideas have to be criticized um i guess more so more so it would go back to the idea that these ideas have reached and so he argues that uh, a lot of science claims about quantum physics and other claims about, you know, other discoveries throughout time have occurred because of bad philosophy. And then they've just proven to, you know, time and time and correct time and time again, physicists with black, bad philosophy are proven wrong. And he, it sort of felt to me like he was like, this was sort of also helping defend his multiverse claim was right. sort yes. of the point of this chapter. Like all three of these lined up, like first he prevent presents you with the correct philosophy. Right. He tells you about the multiverse using the same philosophy that he's been describing the whole book. And then he cements it with this chapter showing all the times physicists have used bad philosophy and been incorrect. Yes. And, and in fact, even, you know, rather on the nose, he uses this chapter to defend the multiverse claim because the first page and a half or so is him saying, this is true. And uh, people mm -hmm. don't agree with it because of bad philosophy. Yeah. Like, that's the author's words, you know, kind of defending his position. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wanted to give the, the definition, I'm going to read this out of the book, the, the, the definition of bad philosophy that he gives. I think it's a really, you know, it's a, it's a definition that has a lot of intuitive sense to it. Um, 
So bad philosophy is philosophy that actively prevents the growth of knowledge. Okay, so actively prevents the growth of, of new knowledge. And I thought, uh, you know, contrasting that with kind of his defense of, of good philosophy, or let's say good science, a little bit different, but close enough, this idea that we're not only are we actively trying to improve our knowledge, but that's all we can do. We have to actively make a guess about the world and then criticize that guess to experiment. And I, and the reason I use the word guess, he says, you know, he uses the word conjecture um, synonyms are, you know, close enough, but I'm always reminded there's a, there's an interesting quote from Richard Feynman. He's and he, you know, gave all these you know, famous Caltech lectures and everything else, but you know, he's there, there's, there's, there's a point where he's in an auditorium talking with students and he says, you know, and then at, at this point, what scientists do is they make a guess and the whole room starts laughing. He's like, please don't laugh at that part. Cause that's really what we do. Like they're that really like we make a guess like that's not funny like that's literally what science entails, and um, I uh, you know it's it's very much like business in that sense where you know you 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 get to a point where you have information that dictates you know kind of this horizon of knowledge, but beyond that horizon truly is the unknown. You really you really don't know the outcome of something until you do it, and. Um, I always think that, that that's an important thing for people to, to think about when it comes to science, even just if you know, most of us, myself included, are kind of lay people on the outside. But there is a limit to what people ever know at a given point. And the only way to go beyond that limit is to guess at what that above limit might be. And so that's kind of, it's in, no, matter, no matter how smart we are, the next step is always a guess. I think that is a really important idea for people to take away from this is that no matter how smart you are, when there's something that you don't know, you have to make like you, you don't just get to know something because you're smart. You have to actually make a guess and conjecture, criticize, et cetera, move forward to that next step. Yeah, that's, um, that was very well said. And, and that's sort of what he's claiming about, like, you know, what he said, um, uh, uh, Schrodinger even like in one of his own lectures made a joke that right. that it was uh, that it was the multiverse and it's like yeah that's what your equations are saying and right. what good philosophy would tell you is that listen to your equations and then like come up with experiments that can t test uh, test this idea you know and and um, uh, Deutsch is claiming that you know these experiments have been run, and that's and like there are clearly experiments that illustrate the existence of the multiverse. Um, but there's still like it's not a, a prevailing view. Um, but that's largely well. Deutsch's kind of claim is that sure. it's just it's just that you know it seems so far fetched. But you know, so does the idea that the Earth revolves around the Sun. You know, like right. like like this isn't the first time in science where you know should the multiverse turn out to actually be real and it has been somehow provable um then it's like it's not the first time that you know humans have just kind of like our own specific lives have become substantially less significant you know the, right. like and he talks a lot about that especially early in the book is that how anthropocentric um early humans were thinking that, you know, that they're, that we are some divine 
thing that the universe was created for, which, you know, arguably, arguably, if there are no aliens out there, then uh, it would be a fair claim, but we're still so insignificant in terms of the size. And like, you know, you find out the size of the actual solar system and then, and then how many solar systems are in our galaxy and then how many galaxies are in the universe. And it's just like, and then you find out like, well, the astronomical absurd number of universes that could exist should every single possible universe exist. You know, it's, it's absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, well, and I thought, and I thought it was funny just going back to the, you mentioned the, the anthropocentric, this idea that the world was made for us. And, you know, one of the ideas that David Deutsch says is like, a lot of the world is completely uninhabitable. I mean, what was made for us? I mean, the ice caps are too yeah. cold. Other places are too hot. You know, this idea that we live in this idyllic place is like, all right, really? <laughs> we live in a lot, of, a lot of the world, a lot of the earth is uh, not inhabitable for us. And um, really what's allowed us to thrive is not living in some kind of Genesis garden, but our ability to think and to improve our situations by using our mind to create wealth. I, we gave the definition of wealth on last episode, I think, but wealth is the entire repertoire of physical transformations that you can accomplish. And so when the cavemen discovered fire, that increased their wealth because now all of a sudden their ability to transform a dry bundle of leaves into fire meant that when they got cold, it wasn't, you know, huddle around and hope we make it through the night. It's like, hey, make a fire. It's cold. Let's get some, burn some of the, the, those leaves over there. And I want to make one quick correction on that. Yes, when, they, yes. when they discovered the knowledge to create yes, fire, thank you. because thank they you. Yes. certainly had probably yes. experienced fires before. Yes. Well, good but, correction. Yeah. Good correction. Um, yes. When they discovered the knowledge of how to, and let me even make it more specific to reproducibly make fire. Mm-hmm. Cause like it wasn't just like they would stumble upon it. You know, I'm sure that happened as well, but, but you're right. When they had the knowledge to create fire by striking a flint, on some on, on a dry bundle of leaves now they're well as a species i mean all of us are here to some extent i would imagine because cavemen had enough wealth to stay warm through the cold winter months so i mean that that's a huge boon and then they discovered metal and now it's like wow we have if we melt this thing right here we can shape it into something else and it cools down again and it's hard and it's like we have a tool now and you know, all of that is having the knowledge of what physical transformations you can occur or you can cause to occur. And, um, and I, I wanted to tie that in because, you know, you're right. And I always make this point. I think it's a subtle point that David Deutsch makes in the book. What we, what we think of as making us, um, you know, or what rather the, the anthropocentric perspective of humans being important in a way misses what actually makes human beings special. You know, it isn't that we're living in a, in a world that was made for us. It's that we are these universal constructors that because of our of the universality of our mind to conjecture and criticize ideas to grow knowledge potentially infinitely, as the author claims, we're universal constructors. We can we can increase our wealth forever as long as we understand the physical transformations that we need to cause to occur in any given situation. And um, and so I, I do think people are, are, are special in that sense. Um, I think we're not special in the sense of you know, being alive. I mean, I think living is certainly special, but I think human beings is at a, another level of, of specialness on top of that because of our of our universal thinking capability, um, rather than the spaceship Earth 
fallacy that we're you know living in the Garden of Eden or something. Um, now, I wanted to also say too, because I like your your talking about his um, perspective on other theories of quantum mechanics. One one obviously bad philosophy of quantum mechanics is the school of shut up and calculate. Because and why is that yeah. bad philosophy? Well, if you just shut up and calculate, a you're reducing your mind to a computer, which it isn't. This case in point, I can multiply big numbers in my head. Even if you're looking at multiplying big numbers in your head, I can easily write a number down, write two numbers down that you wouldn't be able to multiply in your head. So you're not a calculator. You're a thinking human being. Your mind is different than a calculator. Mm -hmm. And what we really are good at is this conjecture and criticism model that, you know, that is science and is good philosophy. If you're in the shut up and calculate school, you're completely closing out any even idea that could come about from thinking about the interpretation of quantum mechanics. And he's really interesting in that. Cause I, and I, I would say, I always felt this as well. Um, people who make light of interpretation in science, I don't understand to me that they, and I, the David the author of the book, David Deutsch makes the same point. That's the most important part. That's the explanation. That's what gives science reach is that we actually have an idea about what the equation means. It's, it's that interpretation that, that is the value or certainly a, a substantial part of the value. And to make a light of that as like a tag on, like, well, this equation works and like, eh, maybe it means that, but who really cares? Like, no, no, that, we need that. Like that part is so important. And when you ignore that part and all you do is calculate, that's bad philosophy. Why? Because you're actively prohibiting by saying it isn't important to waste your time doing it. The growth of new knowledge, the growth of interpretation, the growth of understanding, you're saying it's not worth your time, don't do it. And then people don't do it. They just run the simulation, they run their computer program, you know, what's the thing, you know, 17. Cool. Moving on to the next one. It's like, well, but wait, why? Why is it 17? Why is it not something else? The interpretation is, is, is absolutely important. And so if you're, if you're in college and you're listening to this and you're, and you're taking a quantum mechanics course, if you're looking for a professor to study quantum mechanics from, I would say have a professor that understands the importance of interpretation um, and, under, and understands that, you know, quantum mechanics shouldn't it just be some routine that we do to calculate values that, mm -hmm. would be, you know, that's not good science. We need the thinking, the thought, the human mind bringing us its full way to the table. And to do that, we have to explore explanations in our scientific theories. Um, another great chapter I thought in general though. Yeah. And I think that really my, my, my favorite part is something that you touched on a little bit there. And actually, I don't know if this was, I read some more. I think I went back and read chapter nine and maybe another chapter as well. And I don't, I don't know if he, I think this was a lot in this chapter, but it's just this idea that knowledge is sort of, a, sort of this weapon against extinction. This might've been the optimism chapter. Yeah. 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 Um, and so like you, you, we we're building this knowledge and um, it's like, there's so many things that could occur like you know the probability actually when i was watching the other day uh i was, was actually like last night i was watching uh videos of like the largest volcano explosions and stuff like that right and uh like, like right before bed let me, just, let me just click on one youtube video oh mount saint helen yeah, i told oh, you i'm not that bugged by the idea of death anymore so <laughs> right. it was totally fine um but like a, a Yellowstone, for example, Yellowstone, like it's just right. like a total hotspot. <laughs> they were like showing the diagram of this yeah. thing blowing up, like because basically it erupted like 2.1 million years ago. 
and then it erupted 1.3 million years ago, and then 650,000 years ago. So more time has transpired right, right. from its last eruption the, than the last yeah. two eruptions than between the most recent eruption and today. Good. And, uh, or sorry, less time. So there's more, to, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, so I mean, like the, it's still pretty low, but it's like, you know, with the right knowledge and like, especially if we're multi-planetary and like have better seismic equipment, we can mitigate that da damage pretty greatly. And then like, uh, the, and then I love the claim. I think I'm, this is all in the optimism chapter, but I read that one too. And so that was, so I'll talk about it, but it was like, you know, that will be on the moon eventually. And, um, and like just breathing air and it'll just be normal. Just how like I'm in Texas right now and it's 95 degrees, but it's just a cool, like 72 degrees in my, right. it's not that hot right now, but outside, but you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. That's right. Like, you, you have to live in Texas in the summer. Right. If you didn't right. have just AC. No, no. If we, if, if you can make it in Texas, you can make it on Mars. That, 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 that ought to be what Elon Musk, like that, that should be why he picked Texas. Like, listen guys, if you can live here, we can go anywhere. I mean, Pluto, good evening. This is a cakewalk compared to Texas. Or Antarctica. Yeah. People live there year round. No, right. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's all true. Um, yes, I, knowledge absolutely is, is, is part of um, our ability to perpetuate, you know, human existence and, and you know, human life. Um, and, and a part of that knowledge too, which is, I think, and it's easy to, to, to make light of, but, you know, certainly you need the, you know, you need the energy sources, you know, the raw materials, the engineering, the science, that's, uh, that's all, you know, core, but also as equally important are the, are the social systems, the politics, the sociology, the psychology. I mean, all of that is, is equally as important. If you have a team and, and of course, NASA knows all this. And that's why when they, when they select people, it isn't just, all right. Pick uh, the 10, you know, smartest people or pick the 10 strongest people. It's like, no, no, pick 10 people that can actually live together and be a high functioning team for mm -hmm. how many months they're in transit to Mars. Like if you don't have that part, it doesn't matter how good your technology is. And so uh, and I, that was something that took me a while to understand. And of course, my, my wife understood that well. She, she did some development work in, in, in college and saw that, you know, the communities that have the right social structures in place, um, have more successful projects than ones who don't, because that is just as core to success as any technology is to any kind of development project mm -hmm. or colonizing the moon or Mars, whatever it is. Um, a big part of that task will be figuring out how do we do politics? How do we do voting? How do we do conflict resolution? All those, you know, quote unquote, boring HR things that turn out to really be super important when you have a team of people and they can't depend on earth. And you got a hundred people on Mars. That's all that they have. They have yeah. to be able to work together. There's no, I'm free. I'm leaving. Screw it. Where are you going to go? Dumbass. You're on Mars. You're going nowhere. Sit your ass down. So, I know. Yeah. And, and, and notice, and notice the brilliance of David Deutsch's book, because notice if you commit yourself to the, to the conjecture and criticism model at gives in you a, a, a sense of how to handle conflict. Look, we both got to figure out the right thing to do here. So let's, let's, let's have that be our starting point. I know what you think, you know what I think. Let's start from there. Let, let, let's realize that the truth lies beyond us and let's work towards it. You know, that sets up a way to handle conflict. And, um, and that it's not easy, it's not trivial, but it's a roadmap. We know what we have to do, so let's figure out how to do it. And actually the next chapter, 
talks a little bit about politics, the chapter on choices, <clears throat> which we'll get to next time. But, um, but I, again, I'll, I'll say it again. I think, I think this book, a key book to read. I really think that that's true. Um, I've said maybe about, that about three books that I think are like really mandatory reading that you just have to have in your library. I say Beginning of Infinity, Zero to One by Peter Thiel, and Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. I think those three books you have to, you have to make time to read um, because their, their ideas are important, I think, are necessary for getting us back on track towards, you know, as you were saying earlier, building our knowledge, building our wealth. Um, to keep to keep the show going. Yeah, I haven't read those other two. I'm gonna need to. I keep I've heard so much about Nassim Taleb and like keep hearing him referenced. And I know like yeah, Black Swan idea and all that. And yeah, um, really interesting. I I'll have to read those two. Um, but yeah, that was uh, I really enjoyed those three chapters, and I've enjoyed this whole book. Honestly, it's just I have too. Absolutely, it's changing the way I actually view the world, which is pretty rare. For a book to do yeah and and uh you know so i've, I've read through the book once uh and, and kind of you know when we do these chapter highlights kind of go back and reread the chapters but you know even on my second read through there's still stuff that i'm catching and mm -hmm. um, i mean again it, it, it's a it's a big book it's not i mean it's not super long but you know big book in terms of its ideas and um ideas that are worth trying to incorporate i mean that that's how i, I would phrase it i mean one of the things that that Joe and I talk a lot about on this show is that I really don't want this to feel like a show where we just like talk about things. I don't want it to be a show talking about ideas. So we do a lot of that, but the, the hope is that it, it turns into something material in some way that you, that you figure out a way, you know, uh, me, Joe, anybody who's listening, figures out a way to say, all right, I read this book. What am I going to do about it? What am I going to change? If, if, if this book was so good, what am I, what am I changing to, demonstrate that this actually was uh an important book and um you know I, I assume that that that's a lifelong challenge with a book like this but uh i think it's a worthwhile exercise because um again it's it, it's a, it, it's 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 a big enough tent that i think anybody can fit under and start working together to uh fix the problems that appear to be plaguing us as a nation as we speak <laughs> yeah yeah, I, th I think so too. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a good deal for sure. Yeah, I agree. Jack, any final thoughts before we close out for today's episode? Well, just want to say thanks for having me on. It was, it was good to take Joe's spot for the day. I, um, uh, what was that? You just, I was just flashing up the, 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 the books. books again for our viewers. Yeah. Jack, uh, you were a great guest host. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Um, Took it on pretty short notice, actually, and uh, showed up ready to ready to go to bed and uh, consistently knocking out of the park. So, Jack, thank you for being on here. Let's let's give your show one more shout out. Everybody, check out Jack. Go to uh, wherever you're finding podcasts these days. Go to World's Best Podcast with Jack in Reno, and also follow Jack on Twitter at Jack Ernest. Ernest is spelled U-R-N-E-S-S. -S. Follow him on there. Check out his show. We'll put all that below our video so you can find it really easily. Also want to plug our locals page, which is yes, locals.com slash with Jack and Reno. We've been doing a ton of writing on there. Great. I like that. Um, it's free for now. 
and then also also check out Mutant Fox. I mentioned him at the beginning of the show. He had that that uh, tie-in with uh, the uh, chlorine shortage for water treatment up in uh, the north northwest. Check him out. He has a nice you know, channel for gaming, gaming, streaming, and tech and all that good stuff. So check him out there as well. And of course, check us out <clears throat> at Roses underscore rhetoric that's our twitter handle and our instagram handle and then also our website www.rosesandrhetoric.com and of course we post all this to youtube as well just search roses and rhetoric and you'll find us there and also follow joe at jose four underscore squarevo for twitter and instagram but um that'll do it for this week check us out next time until then ciao